Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. Welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a program on the New Books Network. My name is JJ Mull. I'll be your host for today. I'm recording from Western Massachusetts, which is Nipmuc and Pecumtuck land. And it's it's nice to be here. It's been a little while since I've recorded one of these, so it's it's nice to be back in the saddle, so to speak. And particularly nice to be introducing what was truthfully a really special episode for me to record. I had a chance to speak with doctors Lara and Stephen Sheeha about their book, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, Practicing Resistance in Palestine, which if if you haven't already, please do read. It's just a, I mean, honestly, just an inspiring account of the lived experience and knowledges of psychoanalytically oriented Palestinian clinicians working on the ground in Palestine today and and uses that direct experience and those knowledges to then start to think about what a truly decolonial and emancipatory and liberatory psychoanalytic practice and praxis might mean, particularly within the context of a settler colonial situation. So anyways, by way of introduction, maybe I'll just start with with some brief bios for both Stephen and Lara, and then we'll jump into it. So Stephen Shia is professor of Middle East Studies and director of the Decolonizing Humanities Project at William & Mary, a lifelong militant for racial and economic justice and the liberation of Palestine. His scholarly research is interested in the intellectual and cultural history of the Arab world and liberation thought and praxis in the context of colonialism, racism, capitalism, sexism, and cis-heteronormativity. Lara Shiha is an assistant professor of clinical psychology at George Washington University's professional psychology program. She teaches decolonial, liberatory, and anti-oppressive theories and approaches to clinical treatment, case conceptualization, and community consultation. She is president-elect of the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology and the chair of the Teachers Academy of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Okay, without further ado, here's the interview. Enjoy. So I thought to start, I wanted to talk about, just to kind of set the frame of the book, talk about methodology. And not because I sort of fetishize particular academic notions of methodology, but I think for me, I think when I was read when I read a text in general, and when I, when I was reading this text in particular, it felt like the conditions of its production were really important and integral to the work itself. And I think you both make that really explicit in the writing of the text itself that the conditions of its making are important to name. So yeah, I wanted to talk about methodology. So basically. 
I mean, I guess my question is, is how did you set about on this project and what ethical and political imperatives guided the practices that ultimately shaped the project? You know, I'm thinking here in particular of both theoretical frameworks, but then also just the sort of material interpersonal practices that undergirded the book. Would either of you like to take it away? Who wants to start? Thank you so much, JJ. Yeah, it feels really important to have that. This is the first time we've had a conversation about the book in person with somebody. So that's very special. And I think that actually that process in many ways reflects the same type of methodology that we approached the book with, this sort of the community building aspect, the sort of activist organizing, community organizing, extending that into academic work and intellectual work and intellectual labor and laboring next to folks and making the politics of that explicit, that that's not, that there is no separation between that. And I think um, one of our really dear friends, Anne Pellegrini at the book launch had said this is they feel like this is a uh, bad book, right? That we're bad scholars in as much as like we made no, known from the beginning that this is a position we're taking. This is a political position. And that includes the politics of citation. That includes a decolonial feminist methodology. That includes a community building strategy where we are and continue to be very mindful and sort of bi-directional in what emerges from the book and I say continues because the book doesn't even begin to capture you know even a small part of this community building and solidarity networks that we've been invited into and built together and and the the through line that really I could say and that again loops back around to us being here today together is to work against extractive processes. And I think this is one thing, particularly in the academic setting, where you can very easily get seduced into objectivity, quote unquote. I'm using scare quotes that nobody can see except you (laughs) and Stephen. Um, (laughs) um, And then also about somehow making it like, an ethnography or an anthropological like approach and we were just not interested in that that doesn't mean we didn't have questions by the way but what was beautiful about it and maybe you can speak to this part is that the questions that we had like hey yeah these are questions that we are necessarily we should answer we should ask like all of that became meaningless (laughs) in the context of what emerges in the space when you really commit yourself to the to the process and the methodology of a, a truly decolonial feminist methodology that foregoes particular, let's say, endpoints that you already establish or that have contours that are already available to you. And you allow for an organic process to emerge that is a process of knowledge production together with the people with whom you're working alongside and who are offering of their time and their space. A central part of that also, and this is what sort of you find throughout the book in many ways, is these conversations that we had with people going back and forth to Palestine over a course of four years, taking public transportation, you know, small and big ways in which you end up really being with people 
rather than studying people. I think the framework that guides all of this and maybe what started, how did we embark on this? That was one of the, your questions is our commitment to a liberated Palestine, right? Our commitment to naming and speaking Palestine as our friend Nadira Shalhoub Kavurkian says, that you speak Palestine, it becomes a political intervention and a necessity to speak Palestine in a world that wants to disimagine Palestine, right? That there's a place called Palestine and we go to Palestine and there are people that are Palestinians and some Palestinians are clinicians and they practice psychoanalysis, right? I think that's the, that's the, the real sort of guiding force for us. What else would you add to that, my love? You said most of it. As always, you're, you're you're way more articulate than I am. I would just add maybe the sort of history, yeah. and that is, first I want to say thank you very much for being here and being so gracious. And it is wonderful to share a table with you, and and you're awesome. So thank you for all your work. But I think just to add to what Lara said is, I mean, I think you know we had this conversation earlier about you know Lara's a clinician, I'm an academic. How do you start off on a project methodologically, just like hard tax, right? You know, what have you read? What have you not read? And then what we did, you know, is you know you 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 read a whole bunch of stuff. You read as much stuff as you can. You you have a whole bunch of research questions, and then you and then I went to Palestine for. Um, four months to sort of make connections to talk, start, and you realize that all the stuff you are doing is some is somehow missing the mark, right? And the beauty of this project, I think, was also the when you think about, as Lara said, the decolonial uh, sort of feminist methodology. It is that you allow the work to emerge out of the relationship with the folks that you're talking about. Yeah. You allow them to guide you. You surrender sometimes what you would want to do you allow contradictions to happen and conflict to happen among folks and don't have to always think about how you need to um, uh, make it coherent right um, you let people guide you let the, and 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 by doing that what we really the center precept of this book methodologically is to keep palestinian centered Right. And in terms of the conditions, that condition itself or the condition of the work itself, as Lara sort of suggested, is precisely the condition of settler colonialism, which we are talking about. Right. Going from one place to another. Who can you talk to? Who can you not to? What can what are folks comfortable saying? You know, what are their own relationships? Can we get to Gaza? Can we get to some place? You know, um, who are you when you walk in? People look at you like, who the hell are you? You know, okay, you speak Arabic, you're an Arab, whatever, but like, are you going to be one more, you know, well-meaning schmuck who comes in, studies Palestine and, re- and leaves? What are the relationships? So we've had relationships, we, have, we had to build them, you have to build trust. And sometimes it was, sometimes, you know, folks are incredibly generous in Palestine, they just open up their arms and just, you know, welcome you in, and sometimes it's more work. And so that's really something you don't begrudge, something that you learn to really genuinely value. And that actually structures and and imbibes the work with meaning. Yeah, that's so helpful. I mean, I think part of what I'm hearing in all of this is sort of a grounding. I mean, it's first and foremost, the political commitment is what is guiding the work. It's like the, the commitment to a free and liberated Palestine, first and foremost, is the guiding principle of the work. And in that, the sort of methods and conditions those follow from that central right. premise. Um, and so I think with that 
in mind, I mean, I think what I'm thinking about now is Fanon. And I, I think I wanted to ask, like, from the beginning, in, you know, sort of dovetailing from the methodological questions, how, how and why and why it's important to think of this as a Fanonian text. And in what ways, what does that mean to you? What does that look like in the work? I think part of why this was coming to mind in particular when you were both speaking is that I think this sort of distinction between method and practice in Fanon in particular gets kind of obliterated or blurred. It's sort of the two are bound up in each other. So maybe, yeah, just start with that. Why Fanon? How Fanon? Where is Fanon in this work? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you know how excited I get when you ask a question about... That's right. Um, well, you kind of alluded to it a little bit already, right? And it's wrapped into this making your politics known. And I don't think there's anybody that can read Fanon... Well, let's rephrase that. There are people who read Fanon and think it's, just, it's a metaphor. <laughs> but if you're sort of taking in the the most profound of what Fanon has to offer us, you recognize what you were alluding to about, you know, I think it was in Black Skin, White Mass where he says, I'm not even trying to be objective because being objective would be a lie. And that's not because the lie is sort of, I can't do it. <laughs> it's because he's invested in the material conditions of the world and how colonialism and racial hierarchies are embedded in the world that we live in and speaking to and offering us a taxonomy and an analysis and a how-to in some ways to dismantle the ways in which racial hierarchies exist and then again become enshrined in colonial practices, right? So if it's Fanonian in that sense, you know, we, it's not like we applied Fanonian theory and we're like, here, this is what Fanon says. Now, this is what it looks like in Palestine. It was very much like if you're a Fanonian scholar or somebody who understands what Fanon was trying to do, you can see what's happening in front of your very eyes as a material condition of the logics of settler colonialism. This is what Stephen was saying. And so I think what of one of the things we do is try to really, in centering Palestinians, we're also centering their experience, yes, of oppressive structures of colonialism, but also of life-making, which is also what Fanon talks about, right? I mean, I find Fanon incredibly, you know, uh, he breathes life into me. It doesn't, I don't read it and have, get depressed. I say, wow, this is like, you're, you're really showing, yes, you're showing the mechanics, the violence, but you're also showing the will to live and what we need to do. So I think that's in, in that way, it's Fanonian. It's very much about life affirming practices and what people do and how they might reconfigure themselves and the nefes. Around, despite the oppressive forces of settler colonialism. So, you know, the thing is with Fanon is that the book approaches Fanon as a comrade, right? Like, I'm sick of folks looking at theorists and being like, okay, you know, this is an American utilitarian way of thinking about theory. It's how we can look into what he said. You know, of course, of course, when we look at Palestine, we think about Palestine, when we hear folks talk, we hear the words of 
Fanon, right? But on the other hand, we kind of think of him as a comrade who was engaged in psychiatry, in a settler colonial situation, as someone who was both insider and outsider, right? I mean, he was an Algerian by induction. He was a non, you know, he's non-white colonial subject, but he was also not Algerian, right? So very much like us as Arabs, as Lebanese Arabs in Palestine that are not Palestinian, but we, and him as a political actor and a political militant, not an activist, right? That he's militantly working for an end. So in that regards, I think his work comes out very instrumentally and easily and naturally. So it's a natural camaraderie that we have, you know. I also think he's unbending. I think he's also unflinching. But I also think, you know, we don't look for him for all the answers. But we also understand how he has a political commitment to Marxism, right, to revolution. And um, that helps guide what one might think is an intersectional or internationalist approach to revolution itself, right? This is about the revolution of Palestine. This is about the liberation of Palestine. But it's also to understand how the liberation of Palestine is linked to Arab liberation and, and, and liberation throughout the world. So I think it's a natural, it's a natural camaraderie. Wow. Yeah. I, I love this formulation of Fanon as the comrade rather than citation right it feels like such an important distinction that that you're you're struggling with or alongside him right rather than just just citing him so yeah okay so we're we're sort of we're talking about method we're talking about the material practices that produced the work you know i think um, as both of you have named, I mean, the center of the work is really the beating heart of the work are these Palestinian clinicians. They are sort of right at the heart of the work. And so I think while we might get to more of this a little bit later, I wanted to ask a question about the clinical, basically, and about the clinic. And specifically, maybe you could speak briefly to just the connection between the methodological frameworks that we were just talking about and how they relate to the kinds of knowledge or practice that get produced in the clinic in particular. And how can we think that encounter or think the types of knowledge that get produced clinically, politically? You know, I think I'm thinking here, in particular, you know, throughout the book, you invoke disalienation, reality testing becomes a kind of touchstone of the book. And so I'm thinking of those as kind of particular knowledges that are possible in the clinic. But maybe you both could just sort of riff on that, extrapolate on that a little bit. What a great question. I love that. So I, I actually want to link back to what Stephen was saying. Just like Fanon is our comrade, our colleagues were our comrades. And that did come through the struggle together. So, But yes, I love that you said they're the beating heart of this book. They are. They They make this book. This is their work. We had the privilege of, you know, codifying their work in a book you know transcribing it and being able to be like this is what their work and then that's the knowledge production also that we did together of how do you produce something new by doing that but they're they're doing that work we didn't come in and be like you know introduce anything new they showed us the world that they've been creating and 
how they've been defying the asphyxiatory regime of settler colonialism, right? Defying the unnatural borders that are forced upon them and make their space non-contiguous and them sort of insisting this actually, no, we are connected and we're connected in these ways. And in that way, that is the praxis, right? That's the, 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 the part in the work in the clinic is this refusal. There's also a refusal, a refusal to sort of succumb to the partition. And that partition also shows up in like a refusal to succumb to the arbitrary partition between clinic and street. So you have this sort of, you know, Cezad, our comrade, colleague in Bethlehem, who has this, um, one of our vignettes where he's sitting in a room with a patient and tear gas is coming in. Like, you have to be psychotic to be like, there's a separation between the outside and the room here when it's literally pouring in invasively into you, right? And we can sort of say, okay, nobody would do that. But if you think about the ways in which let's say a North American psychoanalysis tries to keep the outside world out, it's that absurd, right? Whether it's race or class or gender, or any one of these things, like somehow bringing it up would be an imposition. And that's what they, they showed us. Now, the ways it's done is, or, or perhaps the way that they experience it is um, heavy-handed because they're living under settler colonialism where tear gas is pouring in, right? But we don't have to look very far if we're thinking about the movement for black lives. How did that look like in the context of the United States and what is disavowed and our comrades and colleagues refuse that disavowal they refuse the disavowal that actually settler colonialism feeds on which goes back to the reality testing piece you're saying so another thing that they do is sort of not just reality test for their patients but with their patients reality testing emerges as a central piece as a counterforce to the reality bending that settler colonialism needs to continue going on as being mm -hmm. that it's a counterforce it's not just oh i'm reality testing with you and affirming or validating your reality it's saying this reality testing but what is happening is a symptom of a settler colonial regime that is embodied in you is precisely a way that we refuse the conditions that would make us bend reality all the time if we became right if we just sort of started going along with what settlers need to do every day to make to pretend they are the indigenous yeah. right that's reality bending yeah. right with steven's sort of working on this idea of settler colonial reality bending and maybe you can mm. speak more to that the other way they do is, so we have Fathe, our comrade and colleague who's in Ramallah, who said to us, when our patient comes into the room, they're speaking to our same condition. They pass through the same checkpoints we pass through, right? So there also isn't that like, you know, somehow I'm just going to intellectualize this or make it abstract. It's a very real lived experience and they know Right. And when you sort of see these communities that folks are in, they also know who they're talking. They might know the house. They might know the family that somebody's talking about. And there's he's saying this implicates all of us when they speak to settler colonial condition. They're speaking about my condition as well. And so there's something really, I think, beautiful that can emerge from that. And, and you know, in the context, I'm, I'm speaking as a clinician now. So, you know, there's always this worry about colluding with the patient. And I'm like, what are you? 
what do you what do you mean about colluding with the patient when you're just naming what actual structural you know material reality looks like that's not collusion right there is none of that in that space because again there's like an absurdity to think that that would be something you would have to worry about because as Fateh says this is my patient is me yeah I, you know it's funny I also what I just want to stop and also reiterate something that you know we don't want to monochromize right um, clinicians right I mean I think how clinical how knowledge production is produced in the clinic varies from site to site, time to time, relationship to relationship. Cesar is has settler colonial citizenship from the state of Israel. He is from the inside the forty eight borders of so called Israel. But he works and has committed his life and much of his practice to Bethlehem, which is in the, what is now known as the occupied territories. His relationship with his uh, with his uh, patients are, are are predicated on those dynamics within let's call it Palestinian society, right? He's from the north. He's from another kind of another area. He has a different accent. That can be obfuscating, but that can also be um, liberating in many ways and allow sometimes he he says and allow. Um, patients to open up in ways because we may not know their parents their community their village you know um and sometimes it's the opposite someone like nadira who we know you know we know these activists just what's a mukhtar just like chieftains and people they, they they're they're amazing folks and they do everything they know everybody so when you go to that person with your problem that person's going to know everybody so different conditions, I think the, the site of knowledge production is, 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 is contextual. That's really super important. Um, I also would like to say that, you know, the, the book uh, concentrates, as you, you said, on clinicians, never on the patient. We're not, we would never be so presumptuous. And I think in our context, so uh, going back to the methodology issue as well, it's like our, all of our relationships are conversations coming out of long periods of time, the, the generosity of these clinicians. But also I can, I think it's fair to say, and maybe this is the first time I'm saying this publicly, that is also, you can feel that there's like a meta-meta-meta-meta-meta-metabolizing, right? Just as the clinician has to metabolize what happens. In these conversations with us, especially because we're Arab, speaking in Arab, Lebanese, it's the same, it's sort of a parallel with Cesar from Haifa and, 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 and us in Beth, and, and his, his, his uh, um, patient in Bethlehem, right? There is a proximity and a distance that allows certain things to emerge. I feel that our relationships with these clinicians functioned as that too. They, they spoke, so they spoke to us things they already knew, but sometimes had never articulated. They spoke to us knowledge which they had, but never sometimes had the license to say it. I mean, it's like you this, you and a clinician, as a clinician, when you're supervising, to say, yeah, you can do this in the clinical space. They're all classically, and there's no like, you know, alternate, you know, you know, classical train, alternate clinical training going on, and they're having their own. No, these are all, they're, they're, 
pretty classically trained, you know, clinicians. And here they are now having permission to metabolize and to engage and to analyze and to think through the things that they're doing. So I hope in that regard, we, our, mm -hmm. it, it, it is a sort of a dialectic process um, if, and from which knowledge production emerges sort of organically. Yeah, what am I thinking? I mean, I think that precisely that process is what felt really sort of alive to me in reading the book. You know, it really, f I could feel that kind of engagement or the fact that Again, the particular type of knowledge that was getting produced in what came to be a physical book or text was very much a set of unfolding processes and relationships with colleagues and comrades. I mean, in precisely the same way that you were describing Fanon. I mean, it seems like really the the material of the book comes through through a comradeliness with a set of people who, in a shared struggle, again, to come back to the word struggle. And this actually, this sort of maybe transitions well into the next set of questions that I was hoping to, to talk about, which it is a question of, of, of language. Throughout the book, there are these kind of motifs. There are certain words that feel like they really anchor the text and that you come back to again and again, and that they kind of... I mean, something I thought was really beautiful about the book was that the ways in which these sort of anchoring words also figured in different ways and they would sort of expand and contract. And um, so I'm thinking in particular right now, maybe we'll start with just one, Samud, and I hope I'm getting that right. But maybe you could just start with just talking about the kind of how that word figures in the, the, the long arc of Palestinian resistance. And then maybe speak to the way that it's figuring in this text and maybe the way that it comes up against psychological language from the, from the West. You know, I think one thing that I'm thinking, I mean, I'm thinking of Samud maybe as a way of counteracting or disrupting particular words that are popular in Western psychology, like resilience is one that comes up throughout the book. You know, how is Samud different than that? And how does it disrupt you know, hyper-individualist mm -hmm. narratives of what mental health is. Yeah, so we'll start with that. The short, long history of Samud. Um, you know, the, the term Samud in, in Arabic has a lot of, uh, has a, a deep political resonance. And so it, it, it has a deep political resonance that goes back many decades. And, and it's, it, it literally means stalwartness. It means in the, in the unwillingness to budge, to be erased. It comes, it's an explicitly political word in many ways. But what's interesting is actually how it's also used in the daily, in, in the daily vernacular when people are talking. It's to stay firm. When someone's being arrested, sometimes they'll say to the kid, like, stay solid. I mean, this isn't, political rhetoric. This is real shit, right? And Samud can have this sort of master narrative, sort of like, you know, Shab al-Samud, the, the, the stalwart people, the people that shall not be budged. But it also has, it's, it's been explained as a philosophy, and it's, I don't think it is. It's a practice. It's a practice of both refusal and affirmation. So the language itself is incredibly powerful. I just want to, I did want to say one thing, because you made me, and it's something I haven't ever really thought about, you made me just think about it, is that the it's never approached by clinicians within the clinical space as a defense. Yeah. 
because you could seriously see someone's like, oh, you know, someone coming in is, you know, I can't break down. I have to be strong. I have to, I have to stay solid, right? I have to stay stalwart. And the person being like, that's a defense, you know, let it out, break it down, you know. Yeah, you're being rigid or you're being deflective or you're not whatever or tap into your humanity or let it all out, you know, like when then this is not, sometimes it's like, no, you can't, you have to be strong. You have to be strong because when you leave this freaking clinical space, you're going back into a space that is going to aggress you at every fucking turn. Palestine is a violent place and it's violent not because of the Palestinians, it's violent because you have an occupation settler army that has no hesitation to kill you, shoot you, harass you, you know, uh, 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 detain you, detain children, detain your, your grandmother, detain your father, detain your brother. So you better fucking think about, you know, you better keep hold of your, 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 your samut, right? And maybe, you know, if you were, had a white clinician someplace in, you know, Schenectady, they'd be like, you know, maybe you need to just let, let you know, it's okay to let, tap into your inner, you know, tap, tap into your inner weakness, into your inner self, you know, you don't have to be strong, we'll hear, you know. And the Palestinian, I've never heard a no. Palestinian clinician, clinician be like, Yo, lose this, you know, lighten up, man, you know, be, 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 be vulnerable, allow yourself to be vulnerable, you know. I mean, I don't think it's by chance that Sumud also has a very specific place in the political education of, of incarcerated folks, of political prisoners, right. right? And that is also the link when we're talking about sort of like the, the refusing the split between folks who are incarcerated and like. And in a settler colonial regime, everybody's a political prisoner, right? In that regard. So Samud is very much a central piece of that. And that's the con connection from fo with folks who are incarcerated and political prisoners, with folks who are also, who are not. But most families have either had, you know, pretty much every family has had, has been touched by that. So there's also a collective practice of what that means to offer folks who are political prisoners for the cause, sumud. So it's also an action mm -hmm. that people do. It's a process, it's, a, it's an action, it's an offering, it's, um, it's all of that, which is how it pushes up against resilience, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> which is what you're, because resilience also implies in it, not only individual, individualism, but it also has this sort of like that you're continuously bending, that I'm bending in particular ways in response to pressures put upon me. And Samud is like unbending. Mm -hmm. It's very much about standing firm and being unbending and refusing. And what happens with resilience too, it's sort of like a constant assimilative process that also tasks folks with changing and continuously accepting more and more of the changing terrain of fundamentally unacceptable, unconscionable conditions. So you're so resilient when poverty should never be a thing that people should be resilient against. These conditions should never exist, right? But when folks sort of quote unquote make it regards it, it's not, there's nothing that's changing the structure. Whereas Sumud I see as a practice that also says, in steadfastness, we are creating a different world within this world. <laughs> and that changes the structures from inside out, I feel also. 
because it creates a continuous world that Palestinians can also live in resistance and refusal together. And by the way, Palestinians in Palestine and Palestinians who've been expelled and Palestinians who are in diaspora, everybody in, is involved in the practice of Samud, right? It's not doesn't just happen in Palestine. And, and that's, I think, the way that I would sort of contrast the the concepts. Did, did you want to add something yeah. else? I, I think I'm just going to invert something that you that you said that you would agree with me. What, so it's the word Salma, and, and I'm I'm not being patronizing. I promise. Um, the the it it's like think about like a pillar coming out of the earth. So to me, and I think I know what you're saying about sort of you know creating life worlds, but I think it's also for Palestine. It's important to think it's almost the opposite, which is conserving and maintaining the life worlds that is constantly under yeah. uh, erosion, yeah. right? Um, and that's the thing. What we have, and I, and I don't know if we're going to have the opportunity to say this. I'm going to, and if we do the great, we can say it again. But this is what's incredibly important: the Palestinians are the indigenous people of Palestine. This, the, the state now known as Israel, this so-called Zionist state that has been, is a veneer over top of the land of Palestine. It has dispossessed 700,000 people in 1948 and has dispossessed significant numbers more after 1967. It has not let those refugees come home. It's has It destroyed more than 400 villages in 1948. It's important for me to articulate in the utmost clarity that the state of Israel is a settler state, a veneer of a state over sort of laid on the indigenous land and lives of the Palestinians. So when we think about Samud, it is the base of reality. It is the material reality of Palestine. So when you stay Samud, when you practice Samud, you're practicing the holding on to the historical and contemporary reality of Palestine and not allowing this wood chipper little state that just wants to grind everything up and to make a pile and then put a little flag on it and then pretend like it's some, you know, some state that's been there forever. Um, because in the end, there is the, you know, the land of Palestine, and the Palestinian people. Yeah, I mean, that feels like an incredibly important thing to emphasize. And tell me if I'm getting this wrong, Stephen, but it seems like Samud in the way that you're framing it, it's not a, it's not as if Samud is a reaction to, reaction to the settler state. It is the precondition that the settler state comes to snuff out, you know, it's in the same way that, I mean, I think when I think about something like the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Like they are defending something which already exists, a life world which is already there, that they protect themselves from the cops or the encroachment of that which comes to snuff it out. Which I think this feels like a, a good place to talk a little bit about. I think this connects the question of trauma and how trauma studies get taken up within the context of Palestine and thinking about the, the position of the victim. Yeah, I wonder if the two of you could talk about it. It's, it somehow feels related to me, to this sense of, you know, of not simply really emphasizing the extent to which Palestinian subjectivity is not 
defined by or defined against the settler state. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great segue. And I think part of why it's a fantastic way to sort of talk about trauma studies and sort of Samah Jabir has a, has a line who's a psychiatrist in, in Ramallah has a line about that that's really important about like there's on, on the one hand that trauma can't encapsulate it because it's an ongoing process so when we talk about PTSD it also marks a particular temporal it has temporal stamp to it which misses it but I think also what's really important about what Stephen is saying around Sumud is when you think about things from a trauma perspective, it completely elides what he was just saying, right? Because that becomes the central force and the starting point and the contours of how you're experiencing somebody. And then you would miss entirely. That's why they don't, in the clinic room, find it as a defense. Mm-hmm. But if it's imported into a space like that doesn't understand what the concept of sumud is or what you just said as a precondition of being, that the settler state wants to snuff out because that is the thing they can't wrap their apparatus around, right? right? Their state apparatus and the violence. It's something you can't catch. You can't snuff out. Trauma studies comes to be, or trauma where it comes to be an extension and, and can be used as a, as another way in which you snuff out life by missing the vital pieces that people are talking about. And then they become legible only in a particular way. So trauma becomes the lens through which people become legible, through which people become, I can now point to what is happening to you. And I think the most violent thing about trauma studies and sort of seeing Palestinians as victims is they're like, okay, let's say if they're victims, but when you talk about it from a victim perspective or trauma perspective, very rarely is that linked up with a settler colonial condition. Like if you said... These folks are victims because there's a settler colonial state that's practicing apartheid (laughs) and trying to snuff out the indigenous people of Palestine, which are Palestinians. Maybe I'd join you and be like, okay, cool. There's something to what you're saying, but it's never talked about like that. In fact, to become, and this is sort of what Nadira Sharhub Kavrkian also has reminded us that in these um, human rights discourses, you actually have to rid yourself of your Palestinianness to become seen as worthy of being helped, quote unquote. So it's just the the structure itself fails miserably in every way, precisely because it's not actually linking it up to any condition. Well, I just want to actually ironically, as the non-clinician in the room, go to a very psychoanalytic reading also of trauma. And what happens is, is that trauma... We know, you know, you have a child and someone's, their parent is killed and their house is bulldozed or the house is blown up. And this is traumatic shit. No one is saying that trauma doesn't happen. No one is saying that being abused by the settler colonial army, which is called the Israeli army, just to make sure you know who we're talking about here, they are, they're war criminals on a daily basis. And that shit hurts. But to recognize that pain as traumatically painful is to recognize it as an as a injustice. I recognize that tra- the source of that trauma as an injustice that can be rectified. And it can be rectified through the dismantling of the settler colonial regime and the return of the Palestinian people. Yeah. 
that seems so so important and you know as as we're talking i'm i've been thinking about you know throughout the book you discuss the what you describe as as really the there's all this language around choking and asphyxiation and all the tools and strategies used by the settler state to to restrain restrict to choke palestinian life worlds maybe we could just take a moment to really hear from both of you really describing the conditions of asphyxiation as they exist in occupied palestine right now and to particularly the sort of asphyxiatory application of power. You know, you talk in the book about infrastructural violence. In what ways are these these attacks on infrastructure, you know, the attacks on the literal flow, like not metaphorical flow, like the flow of flow and circulation of bodies in space. How are they designed to encroach upon Palestinian interiority, subjectivity, life worlds uh, i mean this is a sort of and chokeholds comes from just beer poir that the constriction of movement is a central piece of this where you see certain places become choke points or chokeholds right on folks's movement and from where they can go and where they can't go and how they can pass so we have you know comrades and colleagues who work in jerusalem Quds, and they have their patients who live right outside of the borders where there's a checkpoint for them to cross, I mean, and remember when we say checkpoints, we're saying, when we talk about it as all being Palestine, there are checkpoints within their home, own homeland, which they have to cross to go from one point to another in their own homeland that might separate one uh, village from another. And some that they can't cross if they don't have correct identification. So that's, but that's another piece of this asphyxiation is the arbitrariness of it. Like, even if you have all the papers, someone doesn't want to let you go today. And I think this is part of what our, to see about this whole asphyxiatory regime is it, it, it infiltrates everyday life because we have our colleagues who would say, well, the super, the Israeli supervisor who supervises me, their child might be the soldier that's stopping a patient or me from crossing a checkpoint at any point, let alone flying checkpoints, by the way, and flying checkpoints, meaning there isn't a checkpoint there in the morning because that's not where a checkpoint usually is. And then they just decide to set up a checkpoint. So you could, and this is, if we're talking about clinical implications of this, somebody could leave their home seven hours before their session and never make it to session because a checkpoint can just so it's also the complete and utter control of space and when a checkpoint comes up and the and the crossings and this is what's so important is when we say you're crossing in your own indigenous land and somebody is restricting that that that's really important and i think sometimes that's lost when we say checkpoint because it presumes you say checkpoint it presumes that this is a natural border that people are it is not yeah, and I, I think it's important to also expand what we think about as settler colonial technologies of asphyxiation. There's, as Lara noted, checkpoints, there's walls, there's fences, there are basically Jewish-only highways that cut through what is now known as the occupied territories. There's Gaza, which is an open-air prison. 
that basically very little comes in and out. It's very little, you know, and uh, one of the most densely populated places on earth. But there's also juridical ones. And one, it's important for us to refocus the fact that the state now known as Israel is an apartheid state. It is a settler colonial state and it's an apartheid state. It's an apartheid state because while no one recognizes Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not a part of Israel. No one recognizes that really until Trump with the United States. It is occupied territories. People tend to sort of be able to divorce Israel as an occupying force in occupied territories and then what happens inside the state now known as Israel. But it is an apartheid state throughout. And inside the apartheid state, there's a series of legal provisions to asphyxiate the Palestinian population, both psychologically and politically, and to some degree, even physically. In, for example, physically, I mean the, the, the difficulty in attaining permits to build a house. Palestinian citizens of the settler state, now known as Israel, cannot buy land wherever they want. They can't move into any, I mean, this democratic state that we are told of, they cannot move into any city or town that they want. There are Jewish-only cities inside the settler state, now known as Israel. They have to get permits to build houses, to fix houses. They are often rejected. Palestinians who are from towns inside the state known as Israel, but they, they're internal displacees, right? So you may be from one town, Tarshiha, but your family was kicked out in, 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 in 48, and now you live in Ramla. You can't go back and just buy your land, even if it's for sale. So there is a juridical, a, a legal system within the settler state, now known as Israel, that is there to asphyxiate the Palestinian people. Recently, it is illegal now to fly, to show a flag in any Israeli state-owned, sorry, Palestinian flag, in any state-owned uh, institution. So that means a school. If you have a Palestinian flag on your backpack and you're six years old, you, it, it comes off. The word Nakba, the, 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 the word that you did, you know, the, the, the Palestinians would use for the tragedy of 1948 of being dispossessed, is not, you can't say that. You can't call yourself a Palestinian if you have a, if an organization, as an organization inside the state now known as Israel, you cannot call yourself Palestinian. So if you have a racquetball club and you want to play racquetball in Nazareth, you can't call that yourself the, the Palestinian racquetball club. Technologies of association are not just limited to the occupied territories. They're, they're, it's, the apartheid state is one unified state for sure. Um, but I will only, only close in to say that there's also a concerted commitment to reject the technologies of asphyxiation, which is why the settler state has to constantly drill down tighter. Yeah, I, the other day I was in, in an event with my colleagues um, that was put on by the Red Clinic and the uh, London Learning Cooperative. And my colleague and comrade Rosine said, when the, when the loop gets tighter, we get stronger. Yeah. I will say that part of what we, you know, our last chapter is 
mapping these networks. And the Palestine Global Mental Health Network is one of these networks that this defies the asphyxiatory regime, right? That say that includes clinicians from all over Palestine and that they come together and sort of work together and produce knowledge together for each other and instead of relying on even quote unquote good Israeli colleagues, right? And don't then they don't have to translate from Hebrew to Arabic, like they always have to if they're living within the state now known as Israel, right? So there's all these ways in which the, the defiance of the sophisticatory regime is really, but also beautiful and life-affirming to them. That's why Rosine says when the loop gets tighter, we get stronger. So I want to come back, I want to sort of end our conversation on the resistance of Palestinians. Let's take a little bit of a pivot before we get there. You have a chapter in the book dedicated to what you're calling psychoanalytic innocence, and you really kind of take direct aim at contemporary institutions, psychoanalytic thinkers. So why did it feel critical in this text in particular to incorporate the critique of what you're calling psychoanalytic innocence? And how can we understand what's getting disavowed by such a so-called, quote-unquote, innocence? And I guess in that, in what ways is this stance of innocence or neutrality bound up in and really undergirded by the foundational disavowals of whiteness itself? Yeah. Let me start with where you ended. Yeah. How's it bound up in whiteness? Yeah. So I think, you know, the concept of psychoanalytic innocence plays on and sort of extends what Tuck and Yang might call settler moves to innocence, what Shirin Razat and Mary Louise Fellows calls moves to innocence, and then what Gloria Wecker calls white innocence. And so embedded in all of that is whiteness and white supremacy. It, there's no way to understand psychoanalytic innocence without understanding that white supremacy is at the heart of that. And white supremacy is linked up with settler colonial violence and coloniality and colonialism and racial hierarchies and racial capitalism. That's where I would start up is that it's intimately intertwined with these things, yeah. right? The reason why it's important is where you ended about the acknowledgement is the, the stating of these things as fact, as material realities, as Stephen was saying, as material realities of the ground, of naming Palestine, of saying Palestine, of saying there are Palestinians, there's, Palestine is there, is that on a most fundamental level, as a psychoanalytic practice that has the ability to lend legitimacy to settler colonial state, right? I think for me, as a practicing clinician, as somebody who would consider myself a psychoanalytic clinician, it's really important for me to say to clinicians who engage in these practices, who cross a picket line, the boycott, divestment, sanctions picket line, BDS, like IARP did, like the rational psychoanalysts did, and hold a conference in LID, is to say to them, you do not get to legitimize settler colonial violence and get away with it. Because you can't claim innocence. You can't at once say you have something beautiful to offer to somebody as liberatory practice and at once align with a settler colonial regime. There are no two ways around it. There is a civil call from 
not only civil society, but in this case, with the conference, there was a call from 20,000 clinicians across historic Palestine that said, don't come. And don't come because you proclaim to be involved and invested in the mental health, mental health and well-being of people. And by doing this, you are outing yourself. You are siding with power. And you are siding with settler colonial power in this case. So on the most fundamental level, I think that's the most important thing about psychoanalytic innocence. Now, the extension of psychoanalytic innocence is the way it shows up in these mechanics, right? Because another way that it does is through these dialogue initiatives. But from everything we've said today, I hope it has become clear that dialogue is a myth. There's nothing neutral about not taking a position on the right side of history and not siding with Palestinians and not fighting for Palestinian liberation. There's nothing neutral in that. And so psych the concept of psychoanalysis doesn't allow those escape latches anymore, where people can say, well, we're doing the good work. Well, it's, it's, it's parallel to psychologists being involved in Guantanamo Bay and saying, I'm just watching and making sure this torture doesn't go too far. Well, you're fucking involved in torture. I think that's the problem we should be looking at, right? Thank you for not making the, you know, the waterboarding go on for 10 minutes, but we let it go on for five minutes. Dialogue is not neutral, and it fundamentally inscribes violence done onto colonized people in the guise of help, and psychoanalysis lends it legitimacy. The end. No, not, not slightly the end, because it's also dialogue is also extractive. It's an extractive process, right? And that is to say that... And this has to do with the technique. It's dialogue is extractive in as much as to ha to sit down to folks at the table, the oppressor and the oppressed, yeah. is actually an act of violence against the oppressed. Yeah. And the pretext of saying that we're at this table, it's a safe space. It's a third space. It's a space hanging out outside of history and power dynamics that somehow you can you know you, you you're not being you're not being you're not being you know violated you're not participating in the process and the violation is is a replication of the of the system of, of of violence that you have to go back out when you exit your third space into yeah. right but i just want to also just tack on one thing about psychoanalytic innocence which is a, a, the issue to sort of not only talk about it in sort of larger political terms, but talk about it within technical terms. Again, the, the non-clinician is talking at this point, but just to say that psychoanalytic innocence is, is, is effectively the way in which technique is used to defuse disruption, right? And that doesn't have to be negation, right, of someone's pain and and positionality it can be an acceptance of it i understand that you are a you know that you're black in the united states and that we live in a racialized society and it is very hard for you and i want to affirm that how horrible that is for you it must be terrible to be black in this world and i hear you and affirm you right but how is it my technique then also only puts firewalls around this 
and make sure to ensure that your experience, while it's social, I'm acknowledging the social and the therapeutic at this moment, right? That it is also one that I allow you, I do nothing to change the structure or to validate your desire to go out and change that structure, right? So psychoanalytic innocence is also a use to destabilize disruption, right? Disruption. When something disrupts a psychoanalytic process that's cataclysmic because it really undermines or reveals the very sort of inequities in which we live and inequities in which the, the analyst might be actually freaking perpetuating in that space as well as in their life. Psychoanalysis is perpetually, like many practices, perpetually presented with an invitation to collude or to disrupt, right? And, you know, it's Joel Covell's, you know, whatever, you know, critique of psychoanalysis as patching up folks to put them back into the widget factory. One role psychoanalysis sees itself as is to identify alienation, recognize it, but through a, a recognizing it, therefore, as natural, you're supposed to alleviate it. It's alleviated by recognizing it. That's liberal psychoanalysis's tenet, mm -hmm. right? So psychoanalysis is always invited to collude. But it also, if it is used as a particular revolutionary practice, can be one of many practices in order to achieve multiple forms of liberation in multiple contexts. And this is where Ian Parker's of the world come in. Folks who have done the work to think through what does it mean to be an ideologically attuned with your patient with the world not necessarily to, to sort of be like no i there is an ideological position here it's one of liberation i work towards liberation that means you are to of course it's a position you're taking but also don't don't think that by not talking or pretending you're neutral or thinking about dialogue you're not taking a position that's an ideological position too, but it's also always sold as not, yeah. right? So the ideological position that somebody like, yeah, that's right, sold as a technique rather than as an ideological position. So somebody like Ian Parker or Neil Faulkner who talk about radical psychoanalysis, Sophie Mendelssohn, who's in France, Erica Berman, who's in the UK, Gail Lewis, who's in the UK, Faluke Taylor, who's in the UK, Gilan Kinawani, who's in the UK, our comrades in South Africa, Shahnaz Sufla, Mohammed Sidat, Garth Stevens, Kapano Ratelli. If I can list them off like that, we have comrades who are thinking beyond all of them are psychoanalytically oriented yeah. right and so we're not, that ideological misattunement is no longer an excuse and that anxiety is a telling on yourself of what you're not willing to do with psychoanalysis through psychoanalysis or for psychoanalysis where others are actually doing that work let alone our folks in palestine who are whose words and, and, and techniques and practices make, like you say, the heart of the book. So yeah, I mean, I think that leads to, I think my final set of questions, hopefully, I think. I mean, I think as you were just speaking, you know, we've been talking a bit in the last chunk of time about a set of critiques and um, about how 
psychoanalysis exists and particular institutions that uphold that. And I think it's really, really important to end with and, and to centralize in this conversation, which I think you do in the book as well, the counter to that or the sort of counter technologies which constant, constantly resist that. And like you said, I mean, I think there are within psychoanalysis, um, you know, all kinds of comrades and yeah. connections and webs of connections and a real groundswell of possibility. So, yeah, and I think that the, the other thing that I was thinking about as you were just talking, you know, we've been throwing out some words like liberation and revolution, and I think these are often words that are used to sort of talk about something in the future or talk about a kind of something situated out there or in the future or not in the present. And I think I kind of wanted to end the conversation with a discussion of the ways in which despite ongoing and relentless infrastructural and settler violence, the ways in which indigenous Palestinian sovereignty persists in the present. And it persists, as you point out throughout the book, not simply as just a relic of the past or some foreclosed future potential, but as a present set of relations, networks, clinics, nodal points, and and infrastructures, which, again, as you point out, which map onto and extend throughout geographic Palestine in the present. You know, and it makes me think again about sort of, you know, the importance of situating the the livability, um, as you put it in the book throughout, um, ad, of Palestinians in Palestine, not simply in the past or the future, but in the present, um, which I also, it makes me think about, I mean, just the ways in which certain indigenous scholars and activists, now I think about somebody like Nick Estes, talks about temporality in a totally different way that really disrupts yeah you know, how we might think of the past or the future and how that lays on to the present. Um, So maybe both of you could talk about that for just a little bit. This is a great, this is an amazing question to end up with because I think, you know, it's all about, again, centering Palestinians, but it's also not only about when we say about centering Palestinians, I think you point exactly to it, is what does that actually even mean, right? One is, again, to just negate that there's something called like this like unified Palestinian. We're not like romanticizing, we know, whatever. But actually that differential within Palestinian subjectivity, within Palestinian society, there is a diversity of points of view, of people, of subject positions, etc. But within that diversity even, there is a unity called the Palestinian people. Right? It's not just a cookie cutter, same person. So you have people in inside the state now known of known as Israel, say in Haifa, in, in Nazareth, in Galilee, who have settler colonial citizenship, and they're removed geographically and in many ways other socially from people in let's say southern West Bank, like um, of course Gaza is cut off you have an archipelago of folks but then there are these moments of their intervention of palestinian clinical or we're talking about the clinical community organizing and they all come together in particular forms in, in particular sort of interventions it could be a publication it could be an online event it could actually be 
an in-person convention before COVID, which is when we were there. And that really, again, I think I like that you recognize the issue of Palestinian sovereignty. That when we look at the map, when all Arabs look at the map of the Middle East, we see a country called Palestine. That is not delusion. It's fact. Many maps in North America print Israel, the capital of Israel as Jerusalem, which is actually against international law. It's not. No one recognizes it. Not inter- no, no one. The UN, nothing. Okay? A few countries that are irrelevant other than the United States, which is irrelevant. Right? And very recent. And the fascists did that. Right? Palestine exists. Palestinian sovereignty exists. It's just constantly trying to be snuffed out by another force. We realize this, it was not something, this is actually one of the realizations of the book. And that realization really, it came out because we saw these folks connecting with one another and identifying in a psychoanalytic way, if we can say identification do, and forging a a healthy subjectivity among one another in the process as we were writing this book out, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'll I'll sort of recenter the... Palestine Global Mental Health Network as an instantiation of that, right? And and sort of give an example from within that to really highlight and, and sort of animate what it means. And to get back to this idea of what Stephen calls, which he did not say, the decolonial now, <laughs> that we're not thinking about futures or right past, but now, and how revolutionary acts happen all the time. Sometimes we're always looking for the sexy, large act that we can identify and we miss the beautiful moments of revolutionary relating that's i think what you're talking about and community building and the care with which people interact with each other right and a recognition of their positions even within the configuration of settler colonialism so like a real attention to their colleagues in gaza with such care and intentionality because gaza is always forgotten so there, there's also sort of a way in which in relating to each other, even as a contiguous sort of defiance of colonial logics of disruption, geographical disruption, there's also an, an, an intentional centering of those who might be most disenfranchised within that configuration, right? Which Gaza sort of emerges as a, right, with the, with the siege in general. So the example of the Global Palestine Global Mental Health Network is we were so honored to sort of be invited to their inaugural event. And this was in June uh, of 2019, I believe. Yeah, it seems, it seems like, what is time? I'm like, 2019, what, you know, um, talk about collapse of temporality, right? It's, and we were beaming in on Zoom and they had us up on the podium on their computer up there, which was just such a lovely experience because one by one people were coming up and we were seeing this and, they were beaming in their colleagues from Gaza, right, Gaza, via telephone, well, via f- computer first, there were 50 people there, and then the power went out, and so one person got on a telephone, and they started using the people's mic to make sure that people in Gaza were not missing the blow-by-blow blow of what was happening at this event happening in Ramallah. Right? So that's a, the sort of example of a revolutionary act that happens in the moment that's so organic. There wasn't like a planning of this. It was like, no, the power goes out. We're not letting them miss this. Right? And it's so, just so powerful. I see you moved by it and I'm moved by it again, just sort of reliving it. The other example is 
the Mana Clinic, the place in Nasira, the Nazareth, uh, which is the only Palestinian-led Arabic-speaking clinical training site in the state now known as Israel. So their trainees don't have to speak Hebrew. They speak Arabic and they learn in Arabic and they, they get taught in Arabic and they talk to each other in Arabic. And they started a what they call a murafiqa, um, a ride-along, a journey with colleagues in Gaza. And it's all via Zoom and they do clinical processing together and they buddy up and they're able to do this. And that came out of their own sort of coming together and saying, how do we lend ourselves Right, talk about like the privileging again, the social location. Like we're all under, we understand the condition, and that's what they kept saying. Najla Asmar, who's a, the head and just, just such a wonderful human being, she and I met a year after, uh, you know, after we had handed in the book entirely to have these conversations, which goes back to the idea of community building. This didn't end with the book. It wasn't the book is not an end point. And we were talking, and she said it's been wonderful because we understand what it means to be Palestinian, but. We're not in Gaza. So it's our responsibility also to extend this from whatever privileges we have. So it's like, what a lesson, right? About even under conditions of oppression to sort of be mindful of what position you take in that. It's a defiance of the settler colonial state. Yeah. Right. right. It's when you simultaneously are communicating either in real time or in organization with from someone from Haifa, from Nablus, from Khalil, from Ramallah, from Beit Laham, from Gaza, you know, from Jerusalem, all at the same time. And there are people like mm-hmm. Rana Nashashibi, who's the head of the Palestine um, Counseling Center, who has been doing these sorts of things for a long time. And so, it, but it's also, you can see, there's also a momentum. And it's at that moment in which they collaborate, you, the whole of Palestine connects mm-hmm. and is illuminated. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you both so much for taking the time, for letting me into your home. It's really a meaningful conversation. And I just, yeah, I feel just sort of, I'm lucky to be able to be in conversation with both of you to sort of count you as friends and comrades and interlocutors. And thanks for taking the time.